a deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. The challenges facing the development community and the global community at large have come to the forefront as we enter the 2020s. In 2019, when we were planning the theme for the 2020 Deeper Look podcast, we thought we're entering a new decade. We can see that there are massive changes that are going to impact the way human development is done and what issues are addressed as we enter this new decade. We didn't know at the time that 2020 would shape up to be a watershed year as a result of overlapping crises brought on first by a global pandemic, unlike anything any of us have seen in our lifetime, uh, that is now affecting 185 countries, and then the impacts or aftershocks of that pandemic, which includes major economic crisis, major social crises. It's the first time in the history of the world that education systems around the world have all shut down at the same time. You have 91% of school children who are out of school. You have societies grappling with how to not only manage the public health aspects of the pandemic, but also the social and, and economic aspects. So it is a very good time for us to look at how is this extraordinary period that the world is going through going to impact the way we think about and the way we carry out human development programs. And today I'm very fortunate to have Mark Masick, the USAID Mission Director in Kenya, as my guest to discuss this. Mark, welcome to Deeper Look. Delighted to be here, Patrick. It's a real pleasure. Mark and I have known each other for a long time, and Mark is one of the people who I most respect in the international development community. Sometimes in the military, you hear people talk about soldier scholars. Mark is the development equivalent. He is a development professional, and he is a scholar and one of the most profound thinkers about the factors and the dynamics that shape the way we carry out development programs. He has been working in international development since the early 1980s. He worked in community development in Swaziland. He worked in the Botswana Brigades, which are a legendary approach to combining employment and education. Also in the 1980s, he worked in Lesotho, helping to expand higher education into rural areas. Uh, he then had a second wave of work in Latin America. He was active with the Sandinista movement in transforming Nicaragua. And at one point, he even ran a coffee plantation. He then moved to the Organization of American States uh, at the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation, where he focused on food security and agriculture issues. He is a strategic thinker, and he is a perfect person to explore the trends that are going to shape the future of human development. So, Mark, let me just give you a broad question. As you look at where we are now, we're in this extraordinary situation where a pandemic has upended all of our programs. 
How do you see this situation impacting the way human development is carried out in the future? Uh, thanks, Patrick. Let, let me just say that, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I put my pants on one leg at a time and uh, just start thinking about things probably like everybody else, you know, and, and under the, these circumstances, you know, I think about the safety of my family. I think about the limited movement that everybody is under in terms of trying to deal with this. You know, I think there are those who have underlying conditions who have a lot of fear right now. And so, you know, I, I think those things uh, shape uh, how people start to view their world. And I, I think that's what everybody's sort of going through right now. So uh, how that fits into the wider development uh, goals that we have of sustainable development goals, of U.S. foreign assistance, all of those things is, is uh, it's a message that we need to adapt and change two circumstances rather than think we have the answers. And I, and I think that what this particular pandemic has demonstrated is that whether we like it or not, this world as a world is all in this together. The interconnectivity of all of this, most of the crises we've dealt with on the humanitarian side have been located in geographies. This one's located everywhere. A lot of the big issues of dealing with how do developed countries, as we used to call them, and I think we need to call them something else, assist developing countries, that's been totally constrained and turned upside down under the pandemic. And so I think that's a message for the developing world as well as the developed world about what the nature of the relationships actually need to be. And I think those partnerships need to transform themselves in a very fundamental way moving forward and be much more about shared interests and much more about equality of interaction rather than this sort of imbalance that gets generated through the foreign assistance equation. Somehow we're helping the developing world to move themselves forward. When I was looking back on some of the data that I used to try to look at what's going on, when you look at what real difference has foreign assistance and aid made in the developing world, it's a real mixed picture when you try to pull together all the data. On the one hand, we think, you know, we've been able to save all these lives of people who might have been infected by HIV and all those kinds of things, great stories. But then on the other hand, in some of the ways that we provide assistance, it's actually distorted markets and it's displaced national resources to do other things rather than enter into the full nature of the partnership that it needs to enter into. And I think that there's uh, blame on both sides about why we get to those positions. And, and we usually look at our relationships as transactional and not transformational. And so I think we really need to move into that transformational space of looking at how our partnerships need to operate that way. What I hear you saying is that one of the trends that the current conditions created by the pandemic are going to amplify and accelerate is the nature of relationships among countries. And yes. that it's moving to break down that now obsolete notion of developed versus developing countries. A good example of that is shared learning amongst countries. So one yes. of the things that we're seeing at FHI 360 is that in the U.S. and in European and other countries, affluent countries, that some of the most effective lessons on how to deal with the pandemic around surveillance, around contact tracing, around indexing cases, come from our experience 
with working on HIV AIDS in Africa. And so you see this transfer of technology and knowledge from African health systems or from people who've been working in African health systems to Mm -hmm. the rest of the world. So that would be a good example of that concept that human development challenges are not unique to poor countries, that Mm -hmm. we all face them. The pandemic is making that very evident. And two is this idea of the changing nature of the relationship. So for me, that's a trend that we already saw before the pandemic, mm-hmm. but now the pandemic has made it very obvious and is actually accelerating it. That's true. The piece of that that's really interesting is that things are now much more multidirectional. You've got north to south, south to north, south to south, north to north. And I think that that transfer of information, knowledge sharing and and the speed at which that can occur in real time creates a whole new opportunity for collaboration that we really need to figure out how we take advantage of. You've got the ability to do those things. The issue is how do you turn that into a tool for advancing together as a world? We're still looking at things in many ways through the lens of national interests. When we deal with these trans-border issues, it's becoming very difficult. And while there's a trend in some places for moving away from globalized solutions to national challenges, there are some national challenges that need global collaboration and coordination. Coordination. And it's not just pandemics, it's climate change, it's migration. migration. Would be a good, good example of that, dealing yes. with, with humanitarian crises. I agree with the point that you're making. And I also think that we need new tools and new methods in order to cope with these challenges or maybe an adaptation of, of old tools and methods, but new ways of applying them. Can you see what some of those might look like? I I can. I mean, I I think one of the things that that I've been trying to do in in the work that I've been doing with AID, where there's a lot of opportunity to explore things, is we've been trying to figure out how we can develop better data sets to help us understand what exactly is going on. Because that's a real challenge, because there are still a lot of things that are invisible in terms of how we make decisions. And so how do we bring those voices and those circumstances to understand the full picture of really what's going on in terms of any situation, that we take a more systems approach to how we address problems, and that we start understanding that, you know, there aren't easy, simple solutions to some of these things. If there were, we would have solved them a long time ago. Understanding how we can become more data-driven and start to understand our own blind spots about that becomes really important. You know, one of the sustainable development goals is all about inclusion. And so one of the big trends that's happened with globalization that we've been in denial about is the continued marginalization and accentuation of poverty in the world and chronic vulnerability. So while there's some people who are making a little more money, and when we start citing the global statistics on on poverty reduction that are mainly due to work in China and India, the rest of the world is not getting better. And even even the United States as well, people are much more precarious. And so I think we need to start measuring vulnerability better than we have in the past to start looking at that. So, for instance, in Kenya, when we did an analysis of chronic vulnerability, instead of just taking the one 
$3.83 as a poverty line, we said, let's take a $3.20 view of looking at things because people are always moving in and out of poverty due to illness or other health factors, as well as drought and all kinds of vulnerabilities that people have. We identified 13 different vulnerabilities that people can face. And we found that 70% of Kenyans have been chronically vulnerable since independence. And that percentage of the population really hasn't changed much since then. And it's still that way. Even though the, the number of people living in poverty by the current measures has gone down, Correct. What you're saying is, in this particular example, the number of people who were vulnerable or who are vulnerable has stayed the same. And I, I yes. bet if you did a similar analysis for the U.S., that you'd see the number of people who are vulnerable has probably increased during that same period. That's the data that I've read. If that's the case, then something's not working. And yeah. so then you have to start asking that question, what is going on and why isn't this working? And so then we've, we've done some of the analytics and we found that there are 1,000 Kenyans who make more money and have more assets than all the other 99.9% combined. And right. so you've got a huge concentration of wealth. And so you have people who don't really have disposable income to be able to live their lives and thrive. They're in survival mode in one way, shape or form or another. And so that affects markets. That means that, you know, consumers base everything on price. So there's really no really real interest in brands. There's no interest in quality. There's no interest in a whole series of things that drive market economies uh, to more sophisticated levels. So, you know, Chinese goods, they're the cheapest. And so that's what everybody's buying. And then, you know, agricultural prices are somehow subsidized through different measures. And so people are always looking for the cheapest, the cheapest, the cheapest, gives rise to black markets and, and, and informal markets and all those things. And so the market system in the country is not working right. The governance systems aren't working right. So we really need to take a more of the systems approach. But then we also need to take it from that macro level down to where are their individual responsibilities within all of this in terms of people's manageable interests and look at what kinds of things need to happen. And for us, it leads us into a space of looking at things from the point of view of accountability and transparency and governance. When you say for us, you mean for USA? For, for AID, yeah. We've become a lot more serious about looking at the impacts of our approach and when we decide that we're going to put resources into a situation about whether we're actually going to enhance or diminish accountability and transparency. Because what we found when we start interrogating that is that there are people who are bad actors and we can't ignore them. Some of them are taking resources from the health sector, from other sectors. They're distorting markets and creating a choke point in a, in, a, in a market value chain that makes it difficult to get competitive operations for that value chain to become an equalizer in terms of greater access. You find that in the tea market, in the coffee market. They're the marketeers who drive that. You know, we set up some livestock markets up north, and then basically it just became a way for the traders to consolidate their power over pricing for goats and, and cows. And we've got to find a way to fix these things. What I hear you saying is it's not just the GDP 
per capita number that we typically use that we need a broader measure that looks at vulnerability or, or resilience if you're looking at the positive side. That is a major trend in terms of looking at what's going to shape the future, that ability to see in to have better understanding of the dynamics on the ground in context, in a place-based manner, is one of those trends. The other that you've mentioned is governance. And in my conversations with leaders in the Deeper Look podcast, over and over again, this concept of governance as the key to addressing fragility comes out. That if you look at the world, we're seeing an increase in overall fragility, even at a national level, the number of states that are fragile or vulnerable. And that at the heart of strategies to work with those countries and for those countries themselves to address the issues that are affecting them is governance. But that also is one of the areas that's most difficult for external actors to address because of issues of sovereignty and level of understanding and mm -hmm. level of ownership of the issues. So you've highlighted governance as central. You've mentioned the issue of corruption, which very often people don't like to talk about, but it is a fact of life and it's not unique to poor countries. If you look at the US, there are very troubling examples of corrupt practices, even coming out of the pandemic emergency where you've got billions of dollars that are being mobilized to address the crisis, which is understandable, but there's lots of news stories coming out about big businesses, private equity-based actors who are billionaires that are reaping the benefits from programs that were intended to help small businesses. So those governance and issues of uh, corruption or just poor practice, you know, poor administration are not unique to poor countries. From the point of view of development workers in the international community, how can we partner with countries or work with countries to address those kinds of issues that are woven into the way elites function? So there's a there's a couple things. One, I mean, I think there's been a great confusion that has to end, and that is confusing foreign assistance money with influence. Uh-huh. I think the pivot we have to make is what we need to do with our foreign assistance resources is to enable agency of actors in the countries that we're working in so that they can drive reforms and change in governance in their countries. That doesn't mean that we're going to incite Arab Springs and revolutions. It means that their voices do need to come out greater at the national level in terms of having the elite start to understand that they are not alone and that there are limits to the marginalization and vulnerability that they're experiencing. And, you know, we also have to work with national elites as well so that they understand that it's not in their best interests to limit the markets and manage cartels and all of those kinds of things in such a way that it diminishes the opportunities for millions of their citizens. And so there has to be a process 
process of building a new social contract, but it's something that we need to enable that and facilitate, but be very careful about not putting ourselves in the middle of it in any way, because as soon as we get in the middle of it, we just generate confusion and usually end up silencing the voices that need to be heard. It also compromises the legitimacy of the whole process once you start to direct it or get in the middle of it. Even even when you're trying to do it right and you're doing a lot of the right things, there are still many pitfalls along the way. And, you know, sometimes you have to have a tolerance for allowing people to do things that may not work very well. But your job is to help them accelerate their own learning. So this is my issue around the whole learning aspect of things. I think it's a critical component and another big trend that has to happen in development as we move towards a different kind of uh, transformational partnership. But the locus of learning cannot just be USAID. It can't be implementing partners. We have to figure out how we enable the, the learning of local organizations and national governments so that they can also assume some responsibility for their learning and drive their own change rather than having it exogenously driven by us. And so I think that's one of the things we're learning. And one of the ways that we're seeing how to do that is to try to model what we're talking about. We're trying to go through a whole process of establishing framework agreements with county governments, with all the actors that we interact with, and then our implementing partners co-create and co-design their work plans with the county government. We help the county governments quantify what their in-kind and financial contribution to the joint effort is. And so then the money is no longer the currency of interaction. It's the partnership to drive a common agenda forward. So changing the nature of that conversation to that transformational partnership and strategic partnership, I think is a big part of how we need to uh, redesign our uh, engagement with, with the local actors that we work with. That is a terrific example at a very operational level of changing the conversation away from one that is solely focused on resources and then who controls the resources is the person who's going to direct the conversation to one that is more about problem focused and how do groups come together, both external and, and internal groups come together to solve the problem. Yeah. So, you know, and, and if we can find a way to get everyone on board with moving things in that direction, then you actually do create a space, a collaborative platform for shared learning. And I think that's the point you need to get to, because, I mean, the challenge with working with governments and many governments across, especially across the African continent, is that there is a legacy of colonial administration that forms part of the mentality of the public sector to give and, 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 and uh, uh, control the population. Right. One of the things that I've been looking at recently is the decolonization mm -hmm. of development work. Is that a topic that's being discussed in Kenya or in East Africa? We talk about it from the point of view of we want to uh, move away from the uh, colonial administration mentality into a more empowerment and collaboration model. That's the way we couch it. I'll give you an example. The law of the land here is that there are 47 counties mandated by the Constitution. 
we've said, okay, let's pull in our mission. And so what we've done is set up county liaison teams that represent me, the mission director, with the county government, and we've empowered them to manage that relationship. Well, that has precisely transformed the way that they've started to understand what our work is. And so it's trying to create these platforms for learning by doing and driving the change by doing it rather than talking about it seems to have more of an effect. And it's uh, it's really had a transformational effect on our staff's mentality and sent a signal to the people who work around the governor that look at these guys. They are empowering their local staff to be able to interact with us and support us on equal footing. We should empower ourselves, too. And so that creates a whole different kind of conversation. That's maybe another trend, reaching back and taking uh, methods that we've known about for decades around experiential learning. So Mm -hmm. learning by doing. Now, you've mentioned the learning agenda. You've mentioned the new ways of partnership, experiential learning. How does that fit into USAID's journey to self-reliance? Journey to self-reliance comes from the idea of former Administrator Green that the purpose of foreign assistance should be to end its need to exist. And I think there's general consensus that we would like for the partnerships to be based on trade, based on more equal relationships between parties and that transformational partnership that we're looking for. But I've translated it for staff and from an operational point of view that J2SR means that we have to adopt three very basic management principles. The first one is, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, there's a word for that, insanity. (laughs) And so let's not go the insanity route. If we can see that things are not working, we need to change. Now, we may not know what to do, so that's where we build in learning, collaboration, and adaptive management into how we do things. We're trying to work into our designs that possibility for adaptive management and figuring things out as we go along, but with our counterparts, not to our counterparts. Adaptive management makes a lot of sense, especially in an environment where things change so rapidly. But how do you reconcile the accountability around achieving identified objectives with the adaptive uh, measures that you're taking that include pivoting and iterating? Mm -hmm. So, at least from my perspective, what I've been trying to do with our teams here and in Uganda was that what you need to do is you need to very deliberately, intentionally, and actively manage learning. And that means you need to have skills and abilities to do that. One is you need to know how to facilitate. Two, you need to know how to systematize. Three, you need to know how to take that learning and then apply an analysis and a lens to it so that you know exactly what you need to change. I'll give you a very good example. We had a project in Uganda that was built on learning that we actually did with FHI 360. It was actually a fixed contract, but it had learning moments in it. And during those learning moments, we systematized the learning, we analyzed the learning, and we said, okay, this is not working. We're going to stop it. So how much money will it cost us in the next 60 days or 30 days to stop this? Do we need to change staffing? Do we need to change this? And then 
what are the how much will it cost to start up the new activity based on the learning that we've had over the next 90 days and so you'd have that overlap you would account for it and you would deliberately manage it under this fixed award fixed price contract and we were able to to make some very significant changes in that program from the time it started to to where it ended and it had a really good impact on on dealing with poverty issues in a number of the the districts we were working in and it was a really good program and that's a good example of incorporating implementation into design. In that example, a key aspect of it was the kind of uh, instruments that you used to manage the program mm -hmm. and the kind of design thinking that went into putting the program in place at the outset. For me, that's an example that if you don't have that design thinking from the very beginning and you don't align, say, iteration, learning, pivoting with the instruments that you're using, you don't have the kind of contract mechanisms, the kind of management mechanisms that will allow that to happen, then you can talk about it, but you're either not going to succeed or it just won't happen. Yeah, but I mean, having said all of that, a lot of the results from that program waned once it ended because at that point in time, we didn't have sort of that J2SR lens to look at co-creation, to look at our counterparts, figure out what the transition needed to look like. And so it was us working directly with the communities. And so there's some lingering effect of that. But as far as the government systems that are needed to continue those kinds of things, we we didn't engage those with the rigor that we should have. And so that was a lesson for me when I came here that, you know, you have to get the government actors involved in this because government in East Africa, at least, have reach all the way down into villages and communities, either through chief structures or whatever administrative structures they have. And so you need them on board. You need them to, to, to understand that, that this is a way for them to modernize and to progress. It's not something to... That that we're doing to try to undermine their authorities. So that would be the, the systemization that you've mm -hmm. mentioned. And, and that's really integrating into existing administrative and governance systems and institutions, both ownership and responsibility for the activities from the very beginning. And creating a serious nexus between those government officials and the communities so that it's not just that, that we've been able to get permission, but that that nexus also starts to begin to show the communities that they have a legitimate voice in making sure that that government official does his or her job. Mm hmm. And so that dynamic is something you have to cultivate because the old colonial administration mentality is to do as you're told when a government official tells you you need to do something. That's still pervasive. We've talked about a number of significant trends that you see shaping the, the future of development. We've also noted that many of these trends, whether it's use of data uh, methods around governance or the importance of, of governance, that these trends are being amplified and I think accelerated by the current conditions that we're operating in. So you and I are having this conversation. You're in Nairobi right now. 
I'm in New Hampshire, and and yet we're having a, a good professional conversation in your operations, in USAID's operations in Kenya and more broadly in East Africa. How have you all been able to adapt to operating under these conditions where we have these um, very s- severe constraints on our ability to personally interact because of the pandemic? Yeah, well, uh, you know, we went from zero teleworking to 100% teleworking in two weeks. And so mm-hmm. we've all been learning about how to make that work. Our implementing partners have uh, gone to teleworking, you know, and my concern was, you know, if, if we're teleworking, our implementing partners are teleworking, the sub partners are teleworking, how are we getting any real work done with people? That's a challenge, you know? And so, but we're seeing that, you know, our partners are finding ways to create agency for local organizations to be able to continue to do things despite the COVID realities and through physical distancing and, and working with families and outreach and those kinds of things. I've been shocked at how much work we've been able to get actually done during all of this crisis. So I think people do find ways to make things happen and do things. We've uh, evolved in, in learning how to do this. I think the fear factors and the the worries that everyone has, though, have taken its toll. So I, you know, I don't I don't know that we've got a right work life balance. You know, I find that you know I spend a lot more time working now than I did when we were in person. And so I hear I'm doing things nine, 10 o'clock at night instead of playing with my kids. And so concerned about that. And, and the whole issue around child care is such a big issue for the world right now. And I think we've got to figure out once there's a vaccine and I see us going back to maybe the old normal in some ways, I don't see teleworking disappearing from people's lives anymore. I think people are going to have a much more integrated work and life because, for instance, my staff here has said, they find that they're much more productive because they don't have to do a two-hour commute to and from work each day. Right. Yeah, we're finding the exact same thing. And I think that we can now see we're going to be in this posture for months. And I think by that time, we will have improved our ability to do things like self-care, you know, to address some of those burnout issues. Because I hear that from everybody. It highlights for me how much of our development work is knowledge work. So I have two questions I want to ask you to summarize the conversation. The first is looking forward, what are the two or three biggest trends or factors that you think are going to shape human development over the next 10 years? I mean, I I think that uh, the issue of globalization and how it's going to start to be viewed in a much more broader terms than it has in the past is going to have a tremendous effect on how we how we say what the problem is. And so the whole issue of climate change, I think, is going to become uh, much stronger, especially in countries like Kenya, where 80 percent of the country is arid and semi-arid. And so that north-south relationship and contribution to, to climate change and figuring out how to mitigate it is going to have a fundamental effect on things. I think markets have, are going to change dramatically. I think people are going to realize that having these long, long supply chains has 
national security implications. And so people are going to be looking to chop them up. So that may increase prices or do other things. But I think that's going to offer new opportunities for diversification of supply chains throughout the world. And I think that's going to be good. You know, all these things that are made in China, I think there's going to be some shifts to, to Africa and some real opportunities around that as well. I think for the South, we still have this issue of, at least in East Africa, of a youth tsunami. It's not a bulge, it's a tsunami. And we've got to find a way to help them with their voice, help them with their skills. And we've got to take a much more affirmative action approach to helping ensuring that they have opportunities to thrive. And I think that is a a big, big worrying trend for me. And I think for us, what I've tried to say to my staff is that if we can figure out how to zero in on adolescent girls, they are the canaries in the coal mine. Yeah, and and maybe the key to healthy societies. Yes, yeah. So I think there's so I think there's an economic trend. I think there's an environmental trend. I also think that you know on the governance side of things, I think the whole issue of inclusion is going to become much more of a global preoccupation, and you know, and the whole issue of markets and what that means and can they really work and the whole issue of the billionaire class and what should be the relationship between them and the rest of society. Uh, All of those things have been coming up, and I think there's going to be hopefully some positive resolution that people need to understand that everybody has has some inalienable rights. So that brings me to my second question, because you said hopefully we'll see a positive resolution. As you look at these challenges that we're facing as we enter the 2020s, which, you know, are more acute than we even imagined six months ago, do you see yourself as an optimist in terms of our ability to confront and overcome these challenges, or are you more pessimistic? So let me try to frame the answer to that with another one of those trends that's happening right now, and that is the issue of love and hate. And so, I I mean, you know, I've always been an optimist and I think that love will triumph. And I think uh, the force of love is much greater in the world than the force of hate. Uh, I think that uh, love's been on its heels for for a bit of time now, but I think it's starting to reassert itself again. So I'm hoping that the the issues around race and and other forms of discrimination and uh, inequality and, and oppression are going to start becoming part of the conversation and hopefully lead to more change than at least we've seen in terms of race relations in the United States over the last 400 years. And hopefully we can get things done a little bit faster. And so, you know, I'm I'm an optimist in that way. I I have uh, a lot of love in my heart for what I do. The best part of the work that I like is being with the people who do the work and interacting with all the people that, that are trying to change their lives. And so that's the strength that I draw on. Uh, When I see these other things happening, I I just, maybe it's uh, because I am a person of faith. Maybe it's also because I think that a happy ending is what's in store for the world and in in store for everyone in their life if they do the right thing. So that's how I view things. And I'm hoping that that love will prevail. And once we get into that space, we actually translate that into uh, some concrete actions that uh, uh, help people who don't feel that love right now. Mark, that's a wonderful message. Thank you so much for sharing that message about love 
thank you as well for sharing your perspectives on the trends that are going to shape the future of human development. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much. And thanks to you, Patrick. We've known each other a long time and you've always been an inspirational person for me. You have uh, an incredible ability to learn and, and move forward. And so it's uh, it's great to be able to, uh, to to sit down and talk with you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for this fascinating conversation. Feel free to post onto uh, wherever you get your podcasts a comment about this conversation and previous conversations. There's a huge amount to explore in our conversations about the trends that are shaping development. Tune in next month to continue the conversation. Thank you all.